0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's
2: really, the JSOC is, is above the law in so many words, and uh, none of us really know exactly what they've been doing. But there are a lot of clues to uh, the fact that maybe 9-11 itself was a special operation, given that the commander of the JSOC was in this critical position between the FAA and NORAD on the day that that exact position was the reason that the 9-11 attacks were said to have succeeded. So, uh, you know, other than Canavan, there are uh, many people uh, who played roles related to either affecting the crimes of 9-11, in my opinion, or covering them up, who were special operations leaders.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 2. Kevin Ryan began to investigate the crimes of September 11, 2001, through his work as site manager for a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. As a manager at Underwriters, he began, in 2003, to question the World Trade Center investigation being conducted by UL and the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and UL's work to ensure the fire resistance of the buildings. Ryan lost his position at UL for making his questions public. He was a founding member of the 9-11 Working Group of Bloomington and scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice. From 2009 to 2011, he volunteered his time as a board director at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. He now serves as co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. His latest book is Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects. Kevin Ryan, welcome again.
2: Thank you, Bonnie.
0: In your book, Another 19, Investigating legitimate 9 11 suspects, you begin your chapter on the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, by noting that the root causes of why none of the planes were intercepted had to do with a lack of communication between two federal agencies, specifically the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, and North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. You write that, quote, in fact, the FAA's command center, nor FAA headquarters, contacted the National Military Command Center to request military assistance for any of the hijacked planes. Narratives about what happened or didn't happen at the FAA have always been confusing, I think. In your book, you have been able to simplify the failed chain of communication at the FAA by boiling down the narrative or the explanation to two important persons in the two key positions at the FAA, both of whom were new to their jobs. Let's start with Benedict Sliney, the National Operations Manager for the FAA's Command Center. What was his job and who is he? Well, Benedict Sliney
2: was, for many years, throughout the 1990s and late 80s, he was an attorney in Wall Street. So he was this attorney for financiers in Wall Street. Uh, Prior to that, he had been uh, an air traffic controller um, through uh, his experience in Vietnam, in the Air Force, and also briefly at the FAA. But then he left... And for a long period of time, he was an attorney working for Wall Street uh, firms. And um, he came back to the FAA in late 2000, just at the end of the year 2000. He was offered a job out of the blue as the national operations manager for the FAA, which was surprising in that he'd been for fifteen to twenty years prior to that not involved with the FAA at all and suddenly someone was offering him a a job as the national operations manager he decided um, to take a step-down job for a few months and become just a specialist um, in the FAA and he worked in that job for the uh, six months, nine months before 9-11 and the first time uh, they asked him again if he wanted to be national operations manager. He took the job, and he was in his first day on the job on 9-11 as national operations manager. So it's very interesting that this guy uh, who had limited experience with the current system was suddenly thrust in position of being in charge of coordinating the FAA's response on 9-11 and it is clear from the testimony of others who were interviewed others there in fact people who were superior to him at the FAA were deferring to Benedict Sliney that morning and allowing him to coordinate the FAA's response so um you know there's a lot of interesting things about Sliney in terms of what he said since then and um and what he's done since then. Um, he's testified that he really didn't know uh, what the military would have done if he had asked them to respond to hijacked airliners. And that, of course, doesn't make a lot of sense for several reasons, because there were a lot of exercises in which the FAA and NORAD were coordinating to intercept hijacked airliners. And in addition, the... Uh, the FAA had a position that was specifically focused on hijacking called the hijack coordinator, and that refers to the other person that you mentioned, um, Michael Canavan.
0: Well, what did Sliney testify to at the nine eleven commission?
2: Well, he was asked basically uh, about the details of the... Uh, of the response the FAA made to uh, the hijackings. But the odd thing uh, about that is although he was interviewed, um, his summary is full of uh, responses from him saying he didn't recall this or that, was not aware of this or that. Uh, he didn't recall being informed about uh, certain things. And and although he did recall that uh, the interceptors were eventually uh, launched, he said he really didn't know what what they would do if they were launched. He said, "You know, what are they going to do?" Uh, and he also stated that he did not receive a request to authorize a request to the military for assistance, which is a strange thing to say. He's the national operations manager for the FAA, and. Uh, for some reason, he seemed to think he needed a request to authorize a request for military assistance, despite the fact that it was standard procedure for the f a a to request military assistance in the instance of a hijacking so this man Sliney, operating as national operations manager maybe we can we can say that oh it was his first day in the job, so he just didn't know but the coincidences of the fact that that Everyone was deferring to this man, that he was an attorney uh, who knew very specifically how to handle evidence and to coordinate. I assume the uh, the description of things in such a way that the evidence wouldn't be uh, too uh, damning is is I think worth following following up on. One other reason is that Laura Brown of the FAA. Uh, another employee of the FAA had written a memorandum in response to some of the 9-11 Commission's hints that the FAA was really to blame for everything. And Laura Brown uh, wrote in her memorandum that uh, that NORAD was aware of, although, although Sliney didn't request assistance, NORAD was aware of uh, everything that was going on in real time as these airliners were being hijacked and this is a long period of time. If people aren't aware, Benedict Sliney, the National Operations Manager, was aware of the first hijacking at 8.15 in the morning, essentially as it was happening, and the record does show this. And so, you know, although one plane was hijacked and he was aware of it, and then uh, 20 minutes later another plane was hijacked, and 20 minutes later and so on, four planes being hijacked and flying around the country for two hours, not being intercepted. Uh, and Sliney was aware of all of this as it was going on and failed to request military assistance. Now That's only part of the story, of course. The FAA is really not entirely to blame, but there are these two characters, uh, Benedict Sliney being one of them, that really uh, call attention to uh, their behavior and their position and why they were there that morning.
0: In addition to the FAA's command center, the other key part of the FAA is its headquarters. At FAA headquarters, according to your book, there is only one person there who is authorized to request military assistance, and that is the hijack coordinator, who was not in town on September 11th. Who held the hijack coordinator position, and what can you tell us about him?
2: Well, this was Lieutenant General Michael Canavan. And uh, so Lieutenant General, referring to the fact that he was a career military man, actually he had spent his entire career in the special forces, going back to Vietnam again as a special forces soldier, and he actually held very high positions in the military for many years. He was the uh, uh, European commander for special operations for many years. He was also the head of a group called the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, in the late 90s. And people may remember JSOC because that's the the group uh, from the military that uh, was said to have killed Osama bin Laden, finally, many years later. They are a very secretive um, group uh, on the order of covert operation like the CIA. In fact, they operate along with the CIA as a paramilitary uh, functioning unit. So Michael Canavan was the head of these uh, special operations groups, and he came into the FAA uh, as the hijack coordinator. The other title for that is the Director of Civil Aviation Security. It's a a very high-level job in the FAA. It reports to the FAA administrator at the time was Jane Garvey, and Jane Garvey is is also known to have not really done anything effective at FAA headquarters on 9-11. But Michael Canavan is the person who should have been the most uh, highly focused uh, witness in the entire investigation, given that the 9-11 Commission found that the reason these planes were not intercepted was because there was a lack of communication between the FAA and NORAD. And the one person who was supposed to be the exact point of communication was the hijack coordinator. So the way it worked is that, uh, you know, FAA centers around the country would report hijacking, and then the National Command Center, which was being run by Benedict Sliney, would report that hijacking and request for military assistance up to the hijack coordinator at at FAA headquarters. And then the hijack coordinator would directly request military assistance through the uh, Department of Defense. Well, Michael Canavan, it turns out, was just not there. He was just not available on the morning of 9-11. And uh, many people know that there were uh, quite a few leaders in the military, uh, in the government, who were just not available on the morning of 9-11. But Michael Canavan, being the hijack coordinator, is one that the 9-11 Commission should have just jumped on. Instead, um they not only didn't ask him about it, they didn't ask him about it at all. He offered the uh, response to another question as, an, as kind of a, an excuse for why he wasn't available, that he was flying to Puerto Rico that morning. But the 911 Commission did not follow up on why he wasn't in that uh, position and who was filling in for him, more importantly. Uh, as we read more through the documents, we find that uh, his normal backup was a woman named Lynn Osmuth, and she had called in sick that day. And there was no other backup to her that was identified. So basically that role, the most important role that was apparently the key to the planes not being intercepted, was just unoccupied that morning, and the 9/11 Commission did not investigate that at all. In fact, they didn't uh, follow up with General Canavan about anything he did. They ended up writing a report that uh, that mentioned General Canavan, but it never mentioned him in his role as the critical hijack coordinator. They mentioned him because he had been the JSOC commander and curiously had been someone who had failed to follow through on a plan to capture Osama bin Laden. Basically they didn't say it in so many words, but they, they mentioned that he was the JSOC commander and that he had basically voted down a plan to capture Osama bin Laden, uh, saying that the Afghan people would be put at too much risk from the operation. Um, and of course you know, since we've invaded that country, we, we never hear that excuse. Uh, the generals never say that the Afghan people are at too much risk. But yet, back in the day, uh, that's what Canavan did.
0: I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: One of the reasons that Canavan is so interesting is that there are quite a few special operations connections in this book in terms of the suspects, and I just go through that detail and try to point out that it's so odd that Canavan was a special operations leader, commander of the JSOC, the very secretive military group. Um, Because a lot of people see 9-11 as something of a special operation in itself. And there are all these other characters in the list of suspects who were also special operations soldiers, from Richard Armitage uh, to Brian Michael Jenkins, who designed the World Trade Center security system, to Dwayne Andrews, who was the head of SAIC, and so on and so on. There are really... uh I'd say enough connections to special operations in the key roles related to what happened on 9-11 that we can safely say that that should be a serious line of inquiry in any independent investigation.
0: Well, like you've said, Michael Canavan had been the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, which ran the military's counterterrorism operations and covert missions. Can you give us a little history of the Joint Special Operations Command? Who set it up, and how did it evolve?
2: Yeah, the the JSOC was um, something that succeeded, essentially evolved from an organization called the Office of Policy Coordination, and this was a secret government-funded organization that uh, was running in parallel with the CIA and came out of the same legislation that the National Security Council put into uh, effect in 1948. Back then, the OPC, uh, Office of Policy Coordination, was led by um, the CIA Director Alan Dulles and the guy named Frank Wisner, who was a State Department uh, official. and. Uh, the JSOC evolved from this OPC group in 1980 um, really as a result of Operation Eagle Claw, which was the failed attempt to rescue the hostages in Iran in 1980. You know, I, I pointed out in my book that uh, there was an interesting coincidence that the guy who ended up founding the Carlyle Group, David Rubenstein, was caught by President Carter Rifling through the president's office and and had seen the secret plans for this operation, I just thought that was very interesting. The Carlisle group is really suspicious because you know it's just unbelievable how all those helicopters failed. People really misunderstand that. they all thought it was because of the dust storm right, and the dust storm, and all these helicopters failed, but that's not true. What happened is there was a series of really inexplicable failures one after the other, different things that happened. And finally, there was this ground accident where the, a bunch of people were killed in an explosion. So it really smells a lot like a, a sabotaged operation. And the fact that Rubenstein, who went on to found the Carlisle Group, was was aware of that operation. It was in Dan Brody's book, uh, The Iron Triangle, about the Carlisle Group. And he just spells it out, how... Carter caught Rubinstein red-handed and drilled him about, "Hey, what do you what did you see?" And and then you know, not long after this operation, just all went to hell in ninety different ways. But it was created after that failure by uh, Ted Shackley's colleague Richard Stillwell. So uh, you know, this is all very interesting because there are other links to uh, Ted Shackley, uh, who was known as the leader of the. Uh, private intelligence network that that evolved in the uh, uh, late 70s and 80s, Richard Stilwell was the leader of JSOC that evolved from OPC and quickly became what uh, Joseph Trento called one of the most secret operations of the U.S. government. But, uh, you know, they they engage in uh, these covert activities around the world. Um, They've been through Central America and now through the Middle East and essentially, traveling around the uh, world and engaging in these paramilitary uh, kidnappings and, and assassinations and all sorts of very black stuff, black budget stuff as well. So that's kind of the history of JSOC. The thing that people may not know today, but the JSOC is a group that has um, been given one of the few exceptions to uh, the Posse Comitatus Act, which is a... Uh, longstanding U.S. law that prevents the military from operating within the United States. But uh, there was a presidential decision directive, uh, PDD-25, which gave JSOC an exemption from the Posse Comitatus Act, which means they can legally conduct their their secret operations within the United States. Although I'm not aware of exactly what they're doing today, I think that's of interest, or should be of interest to people. Uh, another thing with regard to the JSOC after 9/11, uh, Dick Cheney was given uh, direct supervision and oversight of an assassination squad that uh, the JSOC ran. So just after 9/11, JSOC was really let loose. Basically, the military was let loose in the United States, where they were given whatever they wanted in response to this terrorist attack. And, um, and one of the things was increased covert operations, including increased assassinations. And Dick Cheney was running a group uh, out of the JSOC that was doing that.
0: Do you remember what president it was that signed this presidential directive uh, regarding the JSOC?
2: I believe it was Clinton, um, but I don't know exactly who wrote it
0: as you pointed out quite a few special operations soldiers have ties to 911 um the jsoc regularly works with foreign intelligence agencies also right including the mossad according to That's your book. right
2: that's right that's exactly right they they operate with um impunity around the world and they operate alongside other similar agencies like the Mossad, which is an intelligence and paramilitary organization out of Israel. And so um, really the JSOC is, is above the law in so many words, and uh, none of us really know exactly what they've been doing. But there are a lot of clues to uh, the fact that maybe 9-11 itself was a special operation, given that the commander of the JSOC was in this critical position between the FAA and NORAD on the day that that exact position was the reason that the 9-11 attacks were said to have succeeded. So, uh, you know, other than Canavan, there are uh, many people uh, who played roles related to either affecting the crimes of 9-11, in my opinion, or covering them up, who were special operations leaders.
0: What about former Secretary of Defense William Cohen and the Quadrennial Defense Review of 1997? Did it have any impact on September 11th?
2: I think it might have, and the reason that I think so is that the 1997 QDR has been cited as the reason that the national air defenses were so dramatically reduced in the late 90s and the early 21st century. And that is that that uh, defense review called for the reduction of air bases that would be actively set up to respond to this sort of thing. So at the time the report came out, there were 100 jets that were regularly available to respond, to scramble and intercept, hijack planes, respond to air and aircraft. Uh, this defense review recommended that the bases be shut down in such a way that there were only 14 across the country, only 14 jets down from 100 that could respond. And so William Cohen being the Secretary of Defense at that time, he was in charge of uh, the QDR. and you know he's an interesting guy in other ways he he went on to start a consulting group called the Cohen group and uh... his vice chairman was a guy named mark grossman who was a, a state department official at the time of nine eleven mark grossman has been cited by Sibel Edmonds as being a person of interest with regard to nine eleven so those are other clues that need to be followed up um, but on nine eleven specifically the people managing the response or the lack of response had uh, more to do with the FAA and NORAD and what they could have done and did not do on that morning.
0: And what about Hugh Shelton, chairman of the Joint Chiefs on September 11th? Where was he?
2: Well, Shelton was um, curiously flying to Hungary for... Uh, a meeting of high-level military people in NATO. And uh, there's some interesting coincidences with regard to Shelton, other than the fact that he he was the commander of worldwide SOCOM, Special Operations, at the time that Canavan was the JSOC commander. He was also missing, like Canavan, that morning. So it was said that he flew off in this modified jet, much like uh, the E-4B jets that... Um, were seen circling the white house and so forth. Um, it was a modified jet that, uh, was flying to Hungary. And then at some point he was told of these attacks as they were occurring. And there's a story about that. He tells it in his memoirs and they turn around and they come back and they are supposedly refused, uh, re-entry into the United States. Um, But there is more to that story because there are contradictions about how he came back and what he witnessed that morning. So uh, exactly what he did and where he went uh, is not entirely clear.
0: What were the two different reasons why the 9-11 attacks were said to have succeeded and uh, Michael Canavan's responsibility in that. In fact, I I think in your book, he he ran training exercises, didn't he? Exactly, yeah. One of the
2: FAA uh, employees in the intelligence division of FAA said that uh, as soon as Canavan came into the job, again, this was October 2000, so Canavan had just been in the job less than a year, when 9-11 happened, but as soon as he came into the job, uh, this John Hawley, who was an FAA employee in the intelligence division, said that Canavan was running tabletop exercises that were, in hindsight, pretty damn close to the 9-11 plot. Those were his words, pretty damn close to the 9-11 plot. So Canavan has denied running such exercises, but the FAA employee, John Hawley, says that he did. And so there is yet another reason to look at, at Canavan, uh, but there's even more, I mean, with regard to just how could the planes have been intercepted, Canavan has been cited to have written um, policy in the FAA when he came in that uh, really eased up the restrictions on the airlines in terms of their security. He uh, wrote memos saying they didn't need to be fined you know, if they were violating FAA rules, Um, and there was also this team of FAA people who are called the red team and they would go into airports and they would test the security programs. So the red teams would go in and essentially try to get by with, uh, uh, weapons or try to get, uh, what should have been, uh, investigated by the screeners as explosives and try to get into the airports. And, uh, one of the red team leaders that worked for canavan said that uh that the faa leadership was doing what they could to purposefully ignore the fact that uh the red teams were being successful they were they were getting through and that there were plenty of security breaches and possibilities for hijackings but they were told basically uh to cover up the findings in that, uh, really, FAA knew that there was something like this that was going to happen, and FAA leadership didn't do anything about it. And Canavan was part of that. So, you know, his activities to lessen the airline security included uh, not being tough on the airlines, and also ignoring these red team findings, while at the same time doing tabletop exercises that. We're pretty damn close to the 9-11 plot. And then not being there on the day of 9-11, allegedly, and uh, not giving an excuse for that, not having a backup. All these things add up to Canavan, uh, as special operations leader, really being a prime suspect.
0: I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is guns and butter and what is the principals committee
2: well, canavan, although he's missing um, on the morning of nine eleven during the attacks,
0: he actually
2: uh, was a big shot guy immediately when he got back. He was invited to be on the president's uh, principals committee for his war cabinet and uh, so canavan, although he failed completely and didn't explain uh where he was or uh, who was supposed to be backing him up um, was invited that that evening to become part of the president bush's uh basically part of his war cabinet um, and implement some of the plans that clearly were already uh had already been made to look at uh, some of the countries that were in the end invaded um so Canavan's a, a very important person in all of this, and also very little-discussed person.
0: Well, you know, Kevin, I thought a, a very surprising detail about Canavan in your book was that in Croatia, Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown's body was identified by Canavan. Of course, he died in an airplane crash, but I thought, well, that's a weird coincidence.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, Canavan... As JSOC commander, you know, he operated intimately with the CIA's uh, uh, secret group called the Special Activities Division, and he led operations, these secret covert operations throughout uh, Europe, you know, and also in the Middle East and Africa, places like Iraq and Liberia and Bosnia. in Croatia, uh, he was there in 1996, and uh, President Clinton mentioned that it was Michael Canavan who was the one who identified Ron Brown's body after Brown's plane crashed, which does seem um, odd that this man just keeps showing up in these um, uh, very very interesting spots, whether it be uh, voting down a plan to capture Osama bin Laden, and then just after that being the missing hijack coordinator, and also being the guy who who identified a presidential cabinet member's body uh, in Croatia. Um, anyway, he's a very interesting person and, and should certainly be among the suspects.
0: According to your book, U.S. Air Force General Ralph E. Eberhardt had taken control of NORAD from General Richard Myers in February of 2000 and was in control of all air defense operations in North America and also in control of the U.S. Space Command. What are the nine reasons that you list in your book to suspect Ralph Eberhardt of complicity?
2: Well, you're right. I gave nine specific reasons in the book, in the chapter. Um, One of them was that uh, Eberhardt was responsible for setting the levels of something called Infocon.
0: And Infocon
2: is an alert system that uh, defends the military against attacks on its communication networks. So, curiously, just 12 hours before the 9-11 attack, An order was given to lower the Infocon level to its least protective level. They set it um, at this least protective level, and apparently uh, that would have made it easier for uh, people to hack into the uh, computer networks including the air defense system. So that's one reason Eberhardt was responsible for setting those levels, and, and coincidentally, just 12 hours before the 9-11 attacks occurred, this system was set at its least protective level. And another reason is that uh, Eberhardt was the sponsor of, and in charge of, many of the coincidental military exercises, uh, sometimes called war games, that were going on the morning of 9-11. Overall, though, Eberhard didn't do anything in response to the attack, so he was the commander of NORAD, and he did nothing personally. Although he was present in the uh, military's teleconference, he didn't order the scrambling of jets. He did not order an escort for Air Force One. He generally just was not there as a leader at all. Uh, He also failed to implement uh, military control over the U.S. airspace, and people were expecting him to do this. To say, "Oh, what the heck with the FAA?" You know, at this point, it's been an hour and a half. Now we've got planes flying around, crashing in the buildings. We would expect the military to take control of U.S. airspace, um, and Everhart had the power to do that, but didn't do that until well after the attacks were over. Um, another curious thing about Eberhardt is that he decided in the middle of the attacks, at the height of the attacks, to make a trip between Peterson Air Force Base, where he was, and Cheyenne Mountain Operations Center, the NORAD uh, Underground Bunker Operations Center. And that's only a 12-mile drive, but it took Eberhard close to an hour to make this drive in the middle of the attacks. And he said... Basically, he did that because he thought things had quieted down, which made no sense whatsoever. Uh, You know, on his way to this command center, he he was on his cell phone, and he did give one order. He directed all the uh, interceptor jets to battle stations, which you would think would be a a good order, making them more prepared. The problem is at 9.49 in the morning, you know, this is only... 15 minutes before the last plane crashed in Pennsylvania. We don't want them at battle stations. What that did was actually um, kept them on the ground at the air bases. The order should have been to scramble because they were already at battle stations. Um, You know, there were a lot of changing stories of what happened. One thing people should know is Ralph Everhart did lie to the United States Congress. He lied to the Senate Armed Services Committee If the 9-11 Commission report is true, then Eberhardt lied, saying there was many notifications of these hijacked airliners, that these notifications were documented. Um, The only other alternative is that the 9-11 Commission report is not true, which would, of course, make a little more sense, given that the 9-11 Commission report exonerates the military entirely. So there are a lot of reasons. NORAD failed to cooperate with the 9-11 Commission. Uh, they they never delivered some of the documents that the Commission requested. And Eberhardt was in charge of, of all of this. So he should be a prime suspect. In fact, he could be brought up in charges in some cases. Lying to Congress is a crime. So um, he should definitely be investigated further.
0: NORAD was conducting military exercises on 9-11. Was General Ralph Eberhardt in control of these exercises? Yes, he was. He was
2: He was the sponsor of these exercises. And um, the military was asked if they'd ever had similar exercise hijack events. And at first they said no. And then finally, General Myers, who was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time of 9-11, he said that NORAD had practiced five, five similar uh, hijacked events in the two years before 9-11. And the fact is that records that have been released since then show that NORAD had practiced 28 hijack exercises in the 20 months leading up to 9-11, and at least six of those were focused on hijackings that were located entirely within the United States. And that, of course, puts to rest this excuse that NORAD was only looking outward because they had six exercises focused on hijackings entirely within the United States. And the ones that were occurring on 9-11 were under the sponsorship of Ralph Eberhardt, the commander of NORAD. Uh, One of them was called uh, Vigilant Guardian. This was a big one. And uh, this was one that involved inserting um, simulated data into and over the live uh, data on the radar screens and, uh, and caused a lot of confusion. And the record shows that people were absolutely confused by all these injects, the simulated data. Uh, if you look at the exercise documents, which have been released to some extent, it's just really clear that this was happening right at the time of the attacks of 9-11.
0: What about the field training exercise Spades? Is this uh, type of military exercise relevant to any of the nine eleven flights?
2: I think it is. Um, Spades is referred to uh, as a field training exercise in the documents that have been released related to the nine eleven exercises. And Spades is something that means a radar track has been taken out of the radar coverage for a period of time and then reintroduced as an unknown track. Uh, sometime down the road. And this this sort of feature is interesting because Flight 77 was lost on radar for some time. And uh, I believe it was about 12 minutes um, that Flight 77 was lost on radar. It was flying around uh, the country, turning, being hijacked, and just not showing up on radar. So this spades exercise is important, but there's another exercise that is really of interest for several reasons. Uh first of all, because the 9-11 Commission uh member Richard Benvenista was very interested, and he was the one who was drilling NORAD at first, you know, early on, about these exercises. And this exercise was called twin star. It was what what was called a live-fly joint FAA and NORAD exercise conducted a few years before 9-11. But one of the reasons it's interesting is that the fighters in this exercise, the interceptor jets, never got off on the appropriate heading, and it took them forever to catch up. And not only that, but this twin star involved multiple hijackings at the same time. So those are two things that are very similar to 9-11, And this twin star exercise was the basis for another exercise that was in the planning stages on 9-11 called Amalgam Virgo. Now, uh, technically, the record says that Amalgam Virgo had not been in operation, had not been occurring on 9-11. But it's interesting to wonder if Amalgam Virgo actually was being implemented on 9-11, given that it reflected multiple hijackings at the same time. And the response was the same. The interceptors got off on the wrong heading, and it took them forever to catch. They never caught up essentially.
0: Could you explain what a heading is, and that is that is what Twin star is about right
2: That's right. A heading is part of the scramble order instructions given to interceptor jets so um for example one one scramble order that was given on nine eleven was. 090 for 60. So 090 means to head off in the direction 090 and go for 60 miles. So the heading would be the first part of that. And in this case, 090 for 60 was given as a revised scramble order on 9-11 to jets coming out of Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. And this was the wrong direction So originally they were given a scramble order of 010, which would have taken them more northerly, directly from Langley to Washington, which is where they needed to go. Instead they were given the heading 090 for 60, which means they were going to go east, directly east, 90 degrees essentially, for 60 miles, heading out over the Atlantic Ocean. That's exactly what they did. So instead of going directly north, 010, to Washington, that scramble order was changed mysteriously, by the way. If you look at the records, no one really knows uh, why this scramble order was changed. Uh, there's been some excuses that have been offered, but it's not very clear. Um, and it definitely sent these fighter jets out of the ocean. Uh, there was more to be uh, coming their way in terms of uh, disruption of their their order or their mission to get to Washington. But... Uh, that's what the heading means.
0: I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about Global Guardian and the E4Bs? What are they? Global Guardian was another uh, massive exercise going
2: on. It was a joint nuclear war simulation that was being run by uh, US STRATCOM in conjunction with NORAD, so Strategic Command, uh, the nuclear uh, missile command in conjunction with NORAD. It was essentially uh, uh, practice Armageddon and included live nuclear bombs and three of these uh, airborne command and control airliners called E-4Bs. And as I said, an E-4B was seen circling the White House during the 9-11 attacks and might have been part of that exercise. Others may have heard that uh, uh, bombers were uh, were rolling at the tarmac at Barksdale Air Force Base where uh, where President Bush showed up after leaving Florida. And these were live uh, nuclear bombs, as as we're told. So uh, this was a very interesting uh, uh, sequence of events in that all at the same time that the 9-11 attacks were occurring, there were these many different military exercises. And it almost seemed that the military was preparing for a nuclear war, Um now I I can't explain how that would fit in exactly but people for example a researcher at a blog called shoestring 911 has put together quite a bit of information that reveals that uh the preparation for 911 might have been involved with these preparations for a nuclear war as if somehow they would have promoted the confusion and uh also perhaps prepared the nation in case there were some other things going on on that morning that people couldn't have predicted.
0: What does sim over live mean? Well,
2: sim over live is, is again, back to when uh, the Vigilant Guardian uh, exercise was going on, there would be simulated data, uh, injects, they're also called false radar blips, that were overlaid over the live, real data of aircraft out in in the airspace. So as far as the military was concerned, um, all of their stations at NEEDS, which was part of NORAD, the Northeast Air Defense Sector, which was the critical part of NORAD uh, in the eastern section of the United States that morning, and Cheyenne Mountain Operations Center, all their people had um, radar screens, and this exercise actually put false data on top of the live data. So the real data was was contaminated uh, with a lot of false injects, which led to a lot of confusion that morning. And so the exercises should be of utmost interest to investigators exactly why the sim over live injects, meaning the simulated right over the top of the live, uh, were continuing throughout the attacks. And that's what the record shows, that uh, People were very confused. They were, in fact, in some cases, you know, they didn't really know that real attacks were going on. They were joking about some of the hijacks as if they weren't real. Um, And they were clearly confused by the whole thing. So that's what sim over live refers to.
0: What's a max subsonic order? Well, this is
2: another, uh, there are several strange orders given to the Langley uh, fighters. So, you know, the ones coming out of Langley Air Force Base in in Virginia were headed in the wrong direction, as we noted, and um, they were going at also a, a fraction of their maximum speed. And the reason they were going at a fraction of their maximum speed is they were told to go max subsonic, meaning to not break the sound barrier, go as fast as they can without breaking the sound barrier, which is less than half of their maximum speed for these for these jets. These pilots have testified they'd never heard that before. They don't know where that came from, why they, they were told to uh, go only max subsonic, but that's not the only strange thing. I mean, the other thing being their change in scramble order that has never been explained why they went over the Atlantic Ocean instead of directly to Washington there's more um they had a situation in which their supervisor of flying uh which is someone who's supposed to remain at the base and coordinate with the uh jets as they're uh, conducting their mission the supervisor of flying was also ordered to scramble an unprecedented order so we had all these unprecedented orders including uh, orders to squawk quad sevens, which is, again, something that has never been explained. Why would this special squawk... Squawk means to uh, enter into the transponder a certain code. So if, for example, a commercial airliner is hijacked, they'll put in a four-digit code in their transponder, which, by the way, none of the 9-11 hijacked planes on 9-11 did, although it just takes a few seconds and they were all trained to do it none of them did this. But for the military jets, they also have transponders, and they need to put in the four-digit code as well. And the code they were told to put in was four sevens, quad sevens. Uh, They'd never been asked to do this in any of their exercises before. They don't know to this day what it meant. Um, And there are other similar orders they were given, but all these unprecedented things were happening with regard to the jets that were
0: scrambled, and it led to them never catching up with any of the hijacked airliners. A General Whirley of Andrews Air Force Base, closest to the Pentagon, does he fit into the events of that day? He does.
2: Uh, Andrews Air Force Base was was the Air Force Base that was only 10 miles away from the Pentagon. And so, You know, one would think that Langley, which is a couple hundred miles south of there, uh, wouldn't have been the first air base that the military would have uh, turned to. It would have been Andrews Air Force Base, which did have aircraft on alert, interceptor jets on alert. And their mission was to defend the airspace around Washington, D.C., as their website made clear. Um, So the military, unfortunately, did not turn to Andrews Air Force Base, um instead, Andrews was kind of in this odd uh, series of communications with the U.S. Secret Service, and odd in that, um, you know, the Secret Service called uh, Andrews Air Force Base a little after nine in the morning when uh, um, a couple of the aircraft were either hijacked or about to be hijacked, and everyone knew that. This was going on, and yet the Secret Service, which had the power to, in itself to order uh, jets to be scrambled, not only did not do so, but when the Andrews people asked, hey, can we help you, can we launch some aircraft, they said, no, hang on, we'll call you back. And the Secret Service didn't call them back, uh, despite the fact that these planes continued to be hijacked, despite the fact that the Secret Service knew this uh, was happening, but uh, ultimately, um, the general in charge of uh, Andrews showed up, and his name was David Worley, as you said. And uh, he was apparently um, told somehow that that uh, finally they would like Andrews to scramble jets. Uh, this is the story, anyway, in the 9-11 Commission. Uh, we can't verify it. Uh, general Worley died in a in a kind of a freak train accident in Washington, so we can't follow up with him. But supposedly, uh, he did not want to scramble jets because he needed somebody higher up than the Secret Service to tell him to do so. So is just a really odd sequence of communications that needs to be sorted out. None of it really is very believable. Um, But most importantly, people should know that Andrews Air Force Base was only 10 miles away from the Pentagon, could have been in the air and there immediately, just essentially immediately. There would have been no uh, delay whatsoever. They had interceptor jets on alert. Uh, NORAD said they gave the very poor excuse that Andrews was under the command of the National Guard and therefore not under the command of the First Air Force, but that's not believable because needs had already put out word to any and all international guard units to help. So, um, none of it really adds up and it needs to be sorted out, but the people who need to be investigated include general Ralph Eberhardt. And he at this point is just kind of getting away with, with murder in, in my opinion. Um, and he's been promoted instead of held accountable and, um, you know, he has not been asked how and why he gave such completely contradictory uh, testimony to the U.S. Senate on several occasions. Why General McKinley, with 9/11 Commission staff or Miles Kira's help, also gave false information to the 9/11 Commission? None of these people has been have been asked in detail about any of this. So we just have been given a totally different story, and everybody's off the hook.
0: How did Eberhardt and the military benefit from the 9-11 crimes? Well, as I said,
2: uh, Eberhardt was promoted. He continued being commander of NORAD for a little while, but then he was made commander of what was called NORTHCOM. And again, this goes back to, uh, to some extent, goes back to posse comitatus in that the military is not supposed to operate uh, in the United States, as not have military operations in the United States, but NORTHCOM was a new military command that was created after 9-11 essentially for that. In case that there's a need for military intervention in the uh, continental United States or North America, uh, they created this command called NORTHCOM, and they put um, Eberhardt in charge of it. Now, Eberhardt also went on to become uh, the director of half a dozen financial companies, stock or bond uh, companies. Uh, He also was a board director for uh, companies profiting from uh, oil and gas services and homeland security and other military uh, expenditures. So he financially profited. He profited through um, promotion. And the military in general obviously uh, profited from 9-11 and that, you know, before 9-11, we were talking about closing more and more bases in the base realignment uh, program and uh, cutting the military constantly and uh, and really the military expenditures in the United States skyrocketed after 9/11 you know almost anything they asked for was approved so um you know there's reason to believe that Eberhardt and in general NORAD Uh, benefited greatly from 9-11, and therefore maybe they're not as open to telling the truth about what really happened. And I think that um, that should be considered as well as the specifics of what Eberhart did and did not do.
0: Kevin Ryan, thank you again.
2: Thank you, Bonnie.
0: I've been speaking with Kevin Ryan. Today's show has been Another 19, Part 2. Kevin Ryan earned a B.S. in chemistry from Indiana University and has worked as a chemistry laboratory manager for many years in Bloomington, Indiana. He is the former site manager for environmental health laboratories in South Bend, Indiana, a division of Underwriter Laboratories, or UL. Kevin Ryan is a co-editor of the Journal of 9/11 Studies, which publishes peer-reviewed research, and a founding member of Scholars for 9/11 Truth and Justice. He has co-authored several books and peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject of 9/11. Visit www.journalof911studies.com. That's Journal of the numbers 911studies.com. Many of his articles can be found at www.ultruth.com. That's U-L-T-R-U-T-H dot com. His new book, Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects, can be found at www.another19.com. That's another, the numbers one, nine, dot com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. (laughs)
1: Control of your own cipher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what within yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?